Hello everyone, good afternoon, and welcome to an episode of Everyday Black History. I know it's been a couple of weeks since we've gotten together, um, but uh, we're back at it again. You know, sometimes you got to take some time off for personal reasons, you know, things happen, especially now with as crazy as things have been in 2020, you know, we need, we, we sometimes we have more use for personal time, and but you know, uh, we're, we're we're back today, you know, and it's a, uh, at the start of a fresh new week. Uh, as uh, the month of September continues to blow by, and we're heading into the next season of fall. Uh, hopefully, you know, uh, with the season change, hopefully things will get better. Um, but uh, happy Monday to everyone out there. Hopefully, you had a great start to your week. Hopefully, you've had a great weekend and. Um, you know, hopefully this will be a productive week. Um, uh, but yeah, it, today September twenty first. Um, you know, soon we'll be heading. As mentioned, we'll be heading into a new season, and and uh, the election is around the corner. So there's a lot of change happening right now. We're, we're or we're on the verge of a lot of change, I should say. But uh, hopefully, hopefully we can uh, um, provide a little bit of a of a fun distraction today on everyday black history and talk about some black history and today we're going to be talking or for the next few episodes rather we're going to be talking about um uh how should i term this forgotten places in black history throughout throughout all the country there are a lot of places towns cities um or areas that were occupied by by free black people uh whether it was during um even if it was during the times of slavery. Um, some of these towns have been long forgotten through history. And um, a, lot of, uh, a lot of this information is just have, has just come up uh, within the last uh, you know, 20 years um, where there would be uh, uh, um, digs, archaeology, archaeological uh, digs where um, uh, uh, things were found, items are found, artifacts are found from past civilizations of of uh, little towns or remote areas of free blacks where they were homeowners, landowners, business owners. And so for our next few episodes, we're just going to be talking about some of these areas that were forgotten through history. So today we're going to be talking about a place that was known as Seneca Village. And now uh, Seneca Village is now, now where Seneca Village was is Central Park. And um, a lot of information has come up recently about Seneca Village and its history. And even though um, it, it came back to um, it came back to the public in the early '90s when a book was written about it, over the last I would say few years, it's been talked about a lot more. And we've been you know hearing about Seneca Village a lot more in its history as a town where there were uh, free black. Uh, free blacks and landowners and business owners, as well as Irish and German immigrants who lived in this area that was raised um, and uh, and um, you know knocked down for the construction of Central Park. But let's get in, let's get into a little bit of uh, background information on it. Uh, Seneca Village was a 19th century settlement of mostly African American landowners in Manhattan. And um, the settlement was located on about five acres near the Upper West Side, um, what, what we know as now is the Upper West Side. Um, it was founded in 1825 
by free black Americans, and it was the first community um, of, of its kind in the city of New York. And at its peak, the community had 264 residences, three churches, a school, and two cemeteries. As we mentioned, it was also inhabited. Um, there were also nearby settlements near Seneca Village that were inhabited by Irish and German immigrants. And the Seneca Village existed until about 1857, when, through eminent domain, the villagers and other settlement settlers in the area were ordered to leave, and their houses were torn down for the construction of uh, Central Park. And uh, the book that was written, the first book that was written about it, um, that uh, that 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 you know brought Seneca Village back to the public, was a book called The Park and the People. A History of Central Park, and this book was released in 1992. And there were um, projects that were formed to raise awareness of the village. And that, as we mentioned, there were also uh, several archaeological digs that have been conducted to find different artifacts on the history of Seneca Village. Now, the origin of its name is uncertain. There are, there are different theories about where the name Seneca Village came from. Um, some say one theory is that the word Seneca came from a Roman philosopher who, whose books were often read by African-American activists and abolitionists. Um, another uh, theory is that the name Seneca came from the Seneca Nation of Native uh, American Indians. Um, one theory that sounds like it might be correct is that um, the Seneca Village name could be named after the West African Nation of Senegal which is the origin country for many of the village residents. So that sounds like it could possibly be where the name came from, but there are other theories as far as uh, where the name Seneca um, came from for Seneca Village. But um, the interesting thing is that the land um, that became Seneca Village, that became Central Park, was initially purchased by a white farmer by the name of John Whitehead in 1824. In 1825, he began selling off smaller uh, lots from his property. And at this time, um, the young, in April, not April, September 25th, 1825, a young black man by the name of Andrew Williams purchased three lots from the Whiteheads for $125. And um, on that same day, a uh, trustee for a church, the AME Zion Church, um, a, a trustee by the name of Epiphany Davis, he brought 12 lots of land for $578. Now, the AME Zion Church also brought an additional six lots the same week. And by 1832, at least 24 lots have been sold to African Americans. And uh, these were the first lots, you know, that made up what we now, what, what became Seneca Village. Um the uh there were uh, there was a, a nearby development um that went by the name of York Hill and York Hill as well had a lot of uh black americans who who stayed there now York Hill was mostly owned by the city but 5 acres of it were purchased by a man by the name of William Matthews who was a young african american man and he brought 5 acres in the late 1830s he also had a church, the African Union Church, that also brought um, land um, as well in York Hill and in Seneca Village around that same time. Um, now, 
uh, more uh, African-Americans began moving to Seneca Village after slavery was outlawed in New York State in 1827. And um, by the 1830s, people from York Hill was, fo- was forced to move um, because they were building a reservoir. The Croton Distributing Reservoir was being built. And so because the city owned the land outside of the five acres that William Matthews um, owned, the city owned most of that land. So the, to, so the uh, black folks who lived there were forced to move. And so many of them relocated to Seneca Village. Now, uh, later on, many uh, Irish immigrants started to move in settlements around Seneca Village when the potato famine happened in Ireland. And um, they, um, after, so many of them moved there that uh, 30% of the village population um, were Irish immigrants. Uh, but um, during this time, African Americans and Irish immigrants were both marginalized and they faced discrimination um, in the city of New York. And even though there were social and racial conflicts amongst uh, Irish immigrants and African Americans during this time, a lot, you know, we, a lot of us, you know, African Americans and Irish folks lived together in Seneca Village. You lived close to together, went to church together, um, without any issues or any conflicts. By 1855, um, as you mentioned, one third of the village population was Irish. And um, uh, the the large the large um, the majority of people who lived there were African American, but um, a third of the village population was was Irish, and they didn't live exactly in Seneca Village, but they lived in in, a, in areas around Seneca Village. Uh, many uh, well-known Tammany Hall politicians, Irish politicians, were actually born and raised in these settlements around Seneca Village. Um, Many of the, uh, but as we as we talked about, many of the people who uh, who lived there, uh, you know, land ownership was was high amongst black residents. It was much higher in Seneca Village than in the city of Manhattan as a whole. More than half of the uh, African American um, residents owned property, and uh, that was five times the property ownership rate of all of New York City residents at the time. So, you know. A lot of a lot of you know um, free Black Americans that moved there were in a position to purchase land and operate businesses and uh, do well for themselves there. Um, one fifth of of Seneca Village villages inhabitants own their residence, and many of the Black residents were landowners and uh, were economically secure compared to uh, Black folks that lived in the Lower Manhattan. And um, there was a family that was very prominent in Seneca Village, and they went by the they, they went by the name the Lions. They lived in Lower Manhattan, but they also owned a lot of property in Seneca Village, and they were one of the wealthiest families, uh, African American families, in the city at that time. But they were still poor residents in Seneca Village. Um, a lot of the Irish immigrants and German immigrants who lived there. Uh, worked in in service industries such as construction, day labor, or food services, and uh, there, you know, a lot of the black women who worked there, who worked, who weren't like business owners, they worked as domestic servants. Um, uh, there were, but they were um, middle class people, uh, uh, middle class black folks that were there who weren't, you know, like part of the um, the 
quote unquote, you know, elite of Seneca Village. Uh, they were considered middle class. They were, you know, uh, innkeepers and grocers. Uh, so they may not have owned a large plot of land, but they owned the, the residence in which they lived in. And they were considered middle class because they owned their residence and they might have um, um, owned a grocery store or they might have owned an inn that people went and stayed. But um, few of the residents were considered middle class and two of them were grocers and the other was an innkeeper. Um, there were a lot of residents, they had agreements with landlords. And so even if they didn't own the house, they had an agreement with the landlord in which they were allowed to uh, live there. And so even in Seneca Village, there was still, um, you know, classism, you know, amongst the landowners and the property owners and those who were, you know, workers, day laborers, uh, food service, worked in construction, worked as domestic servants. Unfortunately, you have classism in every, in every uh, you know, situation, unfortunately. Um, but the residents of Seneca Village, they fished in the nearby East River and Hudson River when those rivers were a lot cleaner and they were... Um, very, they were very busy rivers because they were used for a lot of commerce on the um, on the ocean, on the waters. Um, they uh, attained firewood from surrounding forests because there were it was a lot of it was a very wooded area, and um, many of the residents also had gardens and barns, and they had livestock. So you can imagine how you know how it might have looked back then. Uh, if you've ever been to Central Park, you see what it looks like now. But you can kind of get an image of what it might have looked like back then when Seneca Village was there. Now, as we mentioned, um, at its peak in 1855, Seneca Village had 264 residents, and many of the residents lived there for over you know two decades. And um, you know many of the residents lived there since the beginning of uh, Seneca Village's, um, you know, creation. Um, during this time, Manhattan wasn't very developed. So there was lower Manhattan that, that was developed, and there was a lot of business and commerce. But above 59th Street, it was only sporadically developed, and it was very rural. So this area, you know, um, this area was had a, had a rural feel, you think of Manhattan as being this bustling uh, metropolis, but back then it was much more rural and much more farm-like. After slavery was outlawed in 1827, um, you know, even then, even even though slavery was outlawed, there still was a lot of voter suppression. During this time, African-American men in the state could vote as long as they had $250 worth of property and had lived in the state of New York for at least three years. So now during this time, there was about 13,000 black New Yorkers and only 91 of them were qualified to vote. And of the voting eligible black population, 10 of them, 10 out of the 91 lived in Seneca Village. So even then, I mean, not, not to say even then, but this goes to show you the voter suppression. 13,000 New Yorkers, if they were all allowed to vote, imagine what they could have done as far as, you know, helping themselves and voting in people who would do the right thing by them. But they, they enacted these laws that made it, you know, nearly impossible for many of them to vote because, you know, many of the 13,000 didn't own land at this time. And um, but just to show you Seneca Village, out of the 91 people who were qualified to vote, 10 of them lived in the village. And the purchase of land by, you know, uh, free blacks 
had a significant effect on their political engagement. And so the um, black landowners in Seneca Village were extremely politically engaged, um, especially in comparison to uh, free blacks in lower Manhattan and in other areas of the city. Now, on Seneca Village, they uh, were several community institutions. They had three churches, as we mentioned, they had two schools, and they had two cemeteries. Um, many of the inhabitants were regular churchgoers. Two of the churches, um, uh, the First African Methodist Episcopal Zion Church of Yorkville and the African Union Church were all black churches. And the All Angels Church, was a, which was a third church, which was a third church that was on the land, was a racially mixed church. So it had that was a church where black, Irish, and German immigrants all went together. The uh, the uh, AME Zion Church um, was officially established in Lower Manhattan in 1821, before they bought property in Seneca Village beginning in 1827, and um, the African Union Church. Um, purchased lots, purchased lots in Seneca Village in 1837, and um, that church um, contained one of the city's few black schools at the time. It was called Colored School Number no. Three, and it was founded in the mid 1840s. So, it, it, it's kind of it's just kind of like interesting that the name of the school was called Colored School Number no. Three, but. Um, this church had a school in it, and, um, and it was one of the few black schools in the city. The All Angels Church, which was founded in 1846, um, as we mentioned, this was the church where black parishioners from Seneca Village and Irish and German parishioners from other nearby areas um, con congregated together. And um, interestingly enough, this was the only church that actually... Um, was still around after Seneca Village was was uh, was raised for Central Park, even though it was relocated to a different area. But we'll get there soon. Now, as we talked about some of the other settlements that were near Seneca Village, um, one of the settlements was called Pigtown. And Pigtown was a settlement of mostly Irish families, and it was called Pigtown because a lot of the residents had hogs and goats. And... Um, and uh, that area now is where uh, the Tavern on the Green restaurant is located. Tavern on the Green is a, is a very well-known restaurant, or was a very well-known restaurant in New York City. I don't know if it's still around, to be honest. And I don't, I don't know. Maybe it is, maybe it's not. I haven't been in that area in so long. But um, it was a very well-known restaurant. Um, it, it's a very well-known restaurant in the city, and um, that was where Pigtown was located. And um, uh, there were also two German settlements, um, um, and that was near Seneca Village as well. And uh, many of those residents were uh, farmers as well. So as we talked about, you know, it's interesting to imagine Manhattan as being, or Central Park as being a farmer's, a farmer's town or a farmer's area. You know, it would have been it would be interesting to see pictures of what it looked like back then. Now, in the eighteen forties was when they started to plan for Central Park. Um, the city's elite wanted um, a new large park in Manhattan. You know, the rich folks they all they wanted a new large park in Manhattan. Now, um, um, two men, one by the name of William Cullen Bryant, who was the editor of the New York Evening Post. 
and Andrew Jackson Downing, which was one of the first American landscape designers. They uh, t- were two primary proponents of this new large park in Manhattan. Now, there was a special committee on parks that was formed to survey possible sites for this new large park. One of the first sites uh, was was an area by the name of Jones Wood, and that was Jones Wood, and that was a 160-acre tract of land on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. And the area now that area was occupied by multiple wealthy families, and of course they objected to anyone coming and taking their land. And uh, two of the families, the Jones family and the Skimmerhorn family, were very wealthy families that occupied New York during that time. So Andrew Downing stated that he would prefer a park of at least 500 acres at any location from 39th Street in Manhattan to the Harlem River. So there was a passage of the of a bill in 1851 to acquire Jones Wood, but the Skimmerhorns and the Joneses successfully obtained an injunction to block the acquisition, and the transaction was invalidated as unconstitutional. Now, because they had money, they were able to make that happen. Now, there was a second site that was proposed. It was a 750-acre area that they were that they were looking at to build this new large park. And again, support by a variety of groups. Um, now, this this um, this uh, acquisition of this land was nullified as well by Jones's Wood, and so uh, because of the fact that they were unsuccessful for a second time, uh, this the Jones family, this rich family, was able to stop the acquisition of this land as well, and because of that. They uh, passed the Central Park Act in July 1853, and this act authorized a board of five commissioners to start purchasing land for a park, and they even created a fund to raise money uh, for this park. Now, Seneca Village was this lone area now that was looked at as, you know, an area where there were vagabonds and squatters, they uh, used racial slurs to describe the residents who lived there, all these pejorative terms to describe the residents who lived in Seneca Village. Park advocates and even the media began to describe Seneca Village and the other communities in the area as, as shanty towns. And uh, the residents there were scoundrels, they were squatters, they were vagabonds. You know, the Irish and the black residents were described as wretched and debased. Um, and they were accused of stealing food and operating illegal bars. Mind you, the residents there operated legit businesses. They were legit, you know, business owners and, and landowners and homeowners. But in their eyes, in the eyes of the elite, they were operating illegal bars and accused of stealing. Um, there were many you know, detractors for Seneca Village, and many of them were wealthy and powerful people. And one of them, who was the engineer of Central Park, he wrote a report where he stated that Seneca Village is a refuge of 5,000 squatters living on the future site of of their park. He criticized the residents as people with very little knowledge of the English language and with very little respect for the law. Now, the, the majority, as you mentioned, a lot of those in Seneca Village were landowners and homeowners and business people, and the minority of, of the village, of the village's residents, um, 
who were living in in homes that they didn't own, they had agreements with and they had agreements with landlords. So they were allowed to stay in this land. But these are the people who they were viewed, who they looked at as squatters. So they spread all these lies about the residents of Seneca Village, which, you know, and then they set their eyes on their land. In 1853, the Central Park Commissioners started conducting property assessments, you know, on um, 34,000 lots in and near Central Park, or what is known as Central Park. And uh, they completed their assessments in July 1855, and the New York State Supreme Court, you know, confirmed their assessments. Um, and so this is when they began taking the land of the residents of Seneca Village and the nearby settlements. So as part of a tax assessment, uh, residents of Seneca Village were offered an average of $700 for their property. Now, um, if you own land, if you were one of the primary landowners and you owned a lot of land in Seneca Village, you were compensated. Um, Andrew Williams, who was the first... Uh, a, a black man who brought land in Seneca Village. He was paid $2,335 for his house and three lots that he owned. Now, he initially asked for $3,500, but when you think about the fact that he brought his land for $125 and walked away with $2,335, he did make a lot of money. And many of the other you know landowners, they were well compensated for their land. But all these other people who, you know, didn't own as much land, they owned their home, but they weren't landowners. They were removed from their homes. They, uh, the clearing, they began clearing the land in um, October 1855. And, been, and then so what the city did to get the residents to leave is they started to enforce little-known regulations and they started to, to to force some of the residents to pay rent um, on on the land because now this, the land they owned it. So if you were if you owned your home and you were living on the land that was that a, a, a free you know black American owned that they you know sold to the, they gave to the city sold rather to the city. Now the city owns that land. They're forcing you to pay rent on the land that your property was on. And, of course, members of the community fought to retain their land. And for, for two years, they protested. They filed lawsuits to halt the sale of their land. But in 1856, uh, you know, they, they prevailed. I mean, the, the, the city prevailed. And residents of Seneca Village were given their final notices. Um, by 1857, the city government had acquired all the private property within the village through eminent domain in which they were able to force people legally off of their land and for this park. And on October 1st, um, city officials in New York reported that the last holdouts living on the land had been removed. And uh, they claimed that the Seneca village would not be forgotten. Um, as 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 uh, many a brilliant and stirring fight was had during this campaign to protect their land, but of course, as we know, since we are just finding out much about Seneca Village, it was clearly forgotten. All the inhabitants of the village were evicted by 1857, and all the properties within the area were razed and destroyed. Um, as we mentioned, the only institution to survive was the All Angels Church. But it was relocated a couple of blocks away, and it had an entirely new uh, congregation. No more of the black, uh, German, and Irish 
uh, parishioners. They had a completely new congregation. There are there are very few records of where residents went after their eviction, uh, as the community was entirely destroyed, um, and many of the residents there were forgotten. Nobody knew, you know, what happened to them. There was a newspaper in Australia in 1920 that described the famous old woman who was alive at 90 years of age in Hawaii who said that she was born in Seneca Village. And by 1997, the New York Times reported that no one had been identified as a descendant of a Seneca Village resident. And um, so, yeah, it's, it's, you know, it was, it's sad that, you know, this historic area was largely forgotten, you know, do, throughout the years. But it wouldn't be the first time that happened, you know, in black history. Um there were other areas where the impact of the of the eviction was less intense. There were some residents uh, who were able in a position where they could relocate, mostly landowners. But the hog farmers and some of the 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 squatters, as they called them, but those who had agreements with landlords, they they were hard hit. They were very much affected by the Central Park construction because they were never compensated for the evictions. They were just kicked off the land. But there were some traces of the village that, that were around in later years. Um, workers that were uprooting trees um, in Central Park, you know, over the years, they would come upon different things that were, um, you know, from the village. In 1871, when they were uprooting trees uh, for Central Park West, they came upon two coffins, both containing black people from the village. And 50 years after that, there was a gardener who inadvertently found a graveyard from Seneca Village while he was turning soil at the same site. So when they raised this land, you know, for Central Park, they, you know, were covering graves. You know, they were covering over graves. They were destroying land that graves were there. And there was no respect or no, there was, you know, no respect for these you know, people who were dead and for the families who lost their loved ones, they were, they were just kicked off the land and, you know, this park was built, you know, on top of, you know, graves and cemeteries. But um, as we mentioned, there were, um, there was a rediscovery in the early 90s when um, this book, The Park and the People, A History of Central Park, was, uh, was written and, um it, it described the community extensively, and there was public interest that was brought about on, um, in Seneca Village after this book was released in 1992. Um, and then the Seneca Village Project was formed in 1998, and uh, it was dedicated to raising awareness about Seneca Village's significant significance as a free, middle-class black community in 19th century New York City. It... Um, facilitated educational programs engaging uh, which engaged school children, teachers and the general public and it brought Seneca Village into public knowledge. And there were a lot of you know people who got behind it and um, you know did what they could to uh, you know bring bring this to public you know interest so that the world would know about Seneca Village. There are plaques now commemorating the site where the village once stood. Um, and and there were there's even been uh, ex- excavations, um, uh, archaeological excavations during over the years, so that they can try and find different historical pieces of Seneca Village. 
local historians, churches, and community groups all got together over the years so that they can try and um, find find you know, some some history of Seneca Village. There were different digs that took place over the years in 2004, 2005, 2011. There were excavations that took place in which they found uh, different things, you know, pieces, parts of the church. They found you know, toothbrushes, uh, shoes, you know, different things like that, just to try and, you know, um, you know, you know, find whatever, whatever they can that was from, uh, you know, Seneca Village. But it's just, you know, it is just sad and heartbreaking that such history was lost throughout the years. But it's a beautiful thing that now, you know, we can we can actually find out more information about places like Seneca Village and and the history that, you know, is behind it. You know, you had this free black settlement that was created during a time when uh, slavery was still legal in this country. And in, in the 1820s, the 30s, and the 40s, you know, many, many years before the Civil War even started, there were, you know, free black people who lived in this town and had, had owned land and, you know, homes and businesses. And, you know, they were largely forgotten throughout history. But, you know, it's a beautiful thing, as mentioned, that we can, that we can, uh, find out about this and there's there's so many other towns like Seneca Village that were um raised and um destroyed, you know, sometimes due due to racial violence, sometimes due to them building something, you know, that they think will be better. And it's usually land from uh black landowners that were taken. So our next few episodes we're gonna, you know, cover those kind of places. You know, there are Places throughout history where that was segregated, and so you know, you know, you you you'll find places like in Atlantic City, you know, in the South where it was segregated, but the black folks in those pictures and in those documents, they look so happy, you know. So we're gonna talk about different places like that in our next few episodes, but we wanted to start by talking about Seneca Village because it is historical and what it means for Black history. So that concludes this episode of Everyday Black History, and we hope you all enjoyed it. And uh, as mentioned, hopefully you enjoy the rest of your week, and we'll be coming at you soon with more black history, so stay tuned for the next episode.